Turn again to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we're in the middle of the story of Lazarus. Jesus dealing with he and his sisters. John chapter 11, we'll consider verses 28 to 44 today. <clears throat> Don't you love free samples? You get them sometimes. Somebody wishes you to embrace what they are offering so much that they're willing to give you some of it free up front just to convince you. I love it. There's a Baskin Robbins store right near my house where I used to live. It's an ice cream store. If you haven't run into Baskin Robbins, it's 31 flavors. They had these tiny little plastic spoons. They would just give you a little spoonful, any kind of ice cream that you wanted, just in hopes that you might really like it and buy some more. I learned that they frown on if you like keep asking for all 31. They didn't like that. Free samples, though, I, I love. found a new free sample this week. I was looking up the Christian copyright licensing people on the Internet, and I got to their web page, and there's a thing that said, New Worship Songs, click here for a sample. Well, that's pretty neat. So I clicked there, and it starts playing this song. That's pretty cool. Click on another one, listen to another song. Free sample. You don't even have to go buy the album. You can listen to it. Most of us like those kinds of things. They give us a hint. They give us a taste of what might be to come. I think in our text this morning that Jesus is giving us a free sample of his work. A hint of what is to come, a taste of the fullness of the salvation that he was bringing, salvation which is now accomplished for us. We're on the other side of his death and resurrection. But let's taste some of the goodness of the Lord's salvation here in this, in this passage. Let me pick up in verse 28 and read. Jesus has been talking to Martha, and now he's going to talk to Mary, her sister, and I'll just read beginning with verse 28. After she, that is Martha, had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the, entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, By this time there is a bad odor for it. Has been, he has been there four days. 
Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Two truths I'd like for us to learn as we meditate on this passage for a few moments. The first is this, that Jesus has borne our sorrows. Jesus has borne our sorrows. Somehow it seems many people have developed a strange caricature of Jesus. We've pictured Jesus as somehow aloof from the common maladies of life which beset us. We've perceived him to be unmoved by human emotions that most people feel so intensely. I think we who call ourselves reformed are the worst, this, for we generally distrust emotions. We just seem to picture Jesus as this always calm, always steady, never excited, never laugh, never cry, never up, never down kind of demeanor. And the result of this misconception is that when our hearts are overwhelmed with sorrow and when our souls cry out in agony, he seems far, far away for what would he know about such things? In our text, we see a different Jesus. Here is a Jesus who has borne our sorrows. And this is only a taste of what's to come. Several ways that we see that. He has borne our sorrows in that he knows what it is to be misunderstood. Last week we saw Martha's response to Jesus' arrival when she said, Lord, if only you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. In verse 32, her sister Mary says the same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother Lazarus wouldn't have died. In verse 37, their Jewish friends use a slightly different words to say the same thing. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? That's not crystal clear what the motivation is of every one of these people or groups of people. In Martha's case, I think that she was rebuking the Lord. It seems that the Lord's response to her indicates some correction. In the case of Mary and the Jews, it may not have been a rebuke, but it certainly communicated frustration and disappointment and may have implied indignation toward the Lord. Whatever little nuances of meaning we might detect it is clear that here Jesus encountered what I would call the if-onlys of grief. If only you had done this. If only you had not done that. If only we might have tried this. It's an interesting phenomenon with parents who lose children, their children die. Very often, I don't know a figure, 
very often they also lose their marriage. The relationship just cannot stand the weight of the if-onlys of their grief. The little suggestions of neglect. The little hints of irresponsibility. If only you had done this. This morning I want you to know Jesus has been there. He's endured the misunderstanding, the subtle indictment. Jesus has borne our sorrow. Second way that we see that's true is that he's borne our sorrows in that he knows what it's like to weep for those you love. You know, Mary was one of Jesus' most special disciples. You probably remember the story back in Luke where Mary is just there sitting at Jesus' feet learning everything she can learn. And Martha's quite indignant because there's a house full of company and Mary's not doing a thing to help and she comes and scolds the Lord and scolds Mary. The Lord said, now Mary's done a better thing. In the next chapter, in John chapter 12, taking the expensive perfume and anointing Jesus' body. But that was an act that was so well known that way back here at the beginning of chapter 11, John uses that to identify this Mary because everybody knew about this Mary. She was a special, devoted disciple of Jesus. Mary's a special friend, a dearly loved sister. But look at her in verse 32 and 33. Here she is on the ground at Jesus' feet, weeping, sobbing uncontrollably. If only you'd been here, Lord. If only you'd been here. How should Jesus respond to such a person? How would you respond if one of your very, very best friends were consumed with such painful grief? Would you say, well, Mary, you've got to get up and shake this off and go on now. Mary, pull yourself together here. What's wrong with you, Mary? You've got to get over this. Was not the response of Jesus. He was not some cool, detached, stoic rabbi. Jesus was moved with love for his dear friend and he grieves with her. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, records the evidence of Jesus' love when it says simply, Jesus wept. He wept. Sorry, guys, you didn't get your show-no-emotion attitude from the Lord. He walks with his friends toward Lazarus' grave with tears streaming down his face. What I want us to see here is that Jesus is not aloof from our pain. He has entered into the grief of this fallen world. He has tasted our tears. He has borne our sorrows. We see it in another way. He's borne our sorrows in that he knows what it is to be angry at death. Dr. Elizabeth Cougar Ross has written very helpfully on the subject of death and dying. Helps us to understand the whole process of grief. One of the things that she tells us is a predictable part of grief, which we will experience times of grief, is anger or rage or resentment. 
for Christians. Feelings of anger bring a terrible sense of guilt. We ought to just be accepting death, right? I mean, it's all got part of God's plan, right? How, how can I feel so angry? This must be a lack of faith. It must be a lack of submission to God's will. But here we see that Jesus is angry too. That's not real obvious to you. Verse, the end of verse 33, the New International Version translates, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And again in verse 38, same expression, Jesus was Jesus once more was deeply troubled. Now I'm sure that's true. I'm sure Jesus was deeply moved and spirit in spirit and troubled. But that is not how these verses ought to read. It's a quite a an unfortunate mistranslation. John uses words that can only mean anger. Words that are used of the snorting of horses. Words that invariably invariably mean rage or indignation, or anger, so that the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson translates this, Jesus was outraged in his spirit and troubled. Or, other, or another scholar says, he was moved to anger in spirit. Jesus has tasted the anger in the face of death. I think B.B. Warfield, a great uh, Princeton scholar from earlier this century, helps us to understand the focus of Jesus' anger. Listen to this quote, it's a little lengthy. It is death that is the object of Jesus' wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites on our behalf. That's what I want you to see this morning in this passage. What Jesus does here, bearing our sorrows, bearing the sorrows of his friends, is just a little taste of what he is about to do as he addresses death and dying in its entirety. That he did on the cross. prophecy of Isaiah as he predicted the cross was in these terms of our sorrows and our pain. You know, the, you know the passage from Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our iniquities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. In other words, Jesus has borne our sorrows. As Jesus proceeded from this incident on toward the cross, it became crystal clear that this is what was going on. He warned his disciples, tonight every one of you is going to fall away and desert me. And they did. He was alone. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He tasted our sorrows. And on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you see, the answer was crystal clear way back here in John 11 and way before that. Jesus came to bear our sorrows. That's what's going on. That's exactly what he did. The English scholar writes Lightfoot wrote concerning this passage, Jesus now voluntarily and deliberately accepts and makes his own the emotion and experience from which it is his purpose to deliver us. Jesus has borne our sorrows. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel. The assurance for all who trust in Jesus that we no longer have to bear the weight of the consequences of sin. Oh yes, we still live in a fallen world and our bodies still die, but because Jesus has borne our sorrows all the way to the cross, not just in little token ways like Mary and Martha saw, but finally and completely as he took on death itself, now even death has no sting anymore. Or as the Apostle Paul writes, we don't grieve like those who have no hope because Jesus has borne our sorrow. This is the truth that we read here in the words on the overhead earlier from Hebrews 4. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way just like we are, but without sin. Let us then boldly approach the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. You see, we can. We must. For we have come to know the reality that Mary and Martha only tasted here on a little spoon. Jesus bearing the grief of sin and death, our sorrow in all their fullness, all the way to the cross. Well, there's another lesson that we need to learn from these verses. And Jesus has borne our sorrows, that's one. But there's another one, that Jesus raises us to live again. Jesus raises us to live again. When we get to verse 38 to 44, the last half of this section brings us to the climax of this whole thing that we've been talking about for three weeks now, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. You may recall as we've gone through the Gospel of John that the miracles of Jesus have repeatedly been called signs. Signs. This is the seventh sign that John has mentioned. Now that's not to say that these miracles never happened. They most certainly did. They are historical accounts, miraculous events, not parables. They are events. But it is to say that these miracles are not just an end in themselves. Jesus didn't raise Lazarus just to give him a few more years. That was not the point. He raised Lazarus as a powerful sign by which he could communicate his truth to us. The truth concerning Jesus and his work. So, what ought we to learn 
from this sign. It's a sign of what? Dr. Jim Boyce puts it this way. It is a picture, this, this miracle, is a picture of how a man or woman who is dead in sin is brought to spiritual life by Jesus. Or to use my words, here we learn how Jesus raises us to live again. As we think about that, the two closely related truths here let me talk about. The first is that here we have this matter of faith. Here we have a call to believe, a call to faith in Jesus because he alone can raise us to new life. We see that in a couple of places here in verse 40. Jesus says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? It's a call to faith. We don't know exactly when he told her that, but clearly he's pressing the issue of faith. By faith, if you believe, you will see the glory. We say seeing is believing. Jesus says, no, believing is seeing. If you believe, you will see the glory. And then in verse 41 and 42, when Jesus prays, <clears throat> we see the same thing in Jesus' prayer. Look at it again in the middle of verse 41. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Why does Jesus pray? Not for his own sake. He's been praying earlier. He's already talked to his father about Lazarus. So he prays for the people's sake. And what is it he wishes to accomplish in these people? What is it he wants them to learn as they listen in on his communication with their father, as he, they see him do the father's work? What is the point? What does he want to happen? That they might believe in him. That they might believe that the father sent him. For whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Sound familiar? Of course it's familiar. It's throughout this whole gospel again and again and again, the call to faith. Believe in Jesus because he alone can raise us to live again. It's a thing Jesus said way back in verse 12, verse 14, when he was talking to the disciples. And he said, actually, Lazarus is dead already, and I'm glad I wasn't there. Why? So that you will believe. And then when he's talking to Martha, he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Don't you understand that he who lives and believes in me won't ever die? And he who, who, who believes in me, even though he dies, he's going to live again. This sign is meant to cause us to believe. To cause the disciples to believe, to cause Mary and Martha to believe, to cause the Jews to believe, to cause us to believe to point us in faith to Jesus because he is the one who can raise us to new life. This morning I'll tell you again, we'll never be good enough. We'll never be strong enough. We will never be faithful enough. We will never be worthy. We will never keep the law well enough to somehow think that we can have eternal life. Can't happen. Jesus raises us to new life. It's a free gift. 
We simply believe, trust Him, entrust ourselves to Him, cling to Him in faith, knowing that He alone is enough for us. Here we have a call to belief. So who believed? Well, hmm. Did Martha believe? Not quite. Jesus said, move the stone. Martha said, no, 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 Lord, no. <laughs> she didn't believe. Jesus was going to raise Lazarus. She didn't. Did Mary believe? No. Did the 12 disciples believe? No, they just wanted to get out of there before somebody killed them. Did the Jews believe? No. No one believed but Jesus. The only faith we find in the whole passage is in the next verse that we didn't read, verse 45, where some, many of the Jews believed. But that's faith which is a result of the miracle, not faith that causes a miracle. Which brings us to the second thing I want to say about Jesus raising us to new life. And that is that the new life that Jesus gives is completely his work, not ours. We said nobody believed. Well, what about Lazarus? Surely Lazarus must believe because Jesus raised him to new life, right? If you believe, Jesus will raise you to new life, right? Well, yeah, Lazarus came to believe eventually. But he didn't up front. He's dead. He can't believe. He didn't know anything. He was dead. Why don't believe, people believe in Jesus today? Because they're dead. That's why. Inside, spiritually dead. Dead to God. Insensitive, untouched by Him. That's God's assessment. In Ephesians 2, He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's the condition. You see, when we say to people, believe in Jesus and he'll give you new life. That's absurd. It's like going down here to the funeral home and finding somebody laid out in the coffin and saying, fellow, would you like to go to church with me? Just get up and come on. <laughs> believe in Jesus and he'll give you new life. Yet, that same passage in Ephesians 2 says that Christ raises us to live again. Ephesians 2, 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Now, how on earth does this work? This is confusing. Well, that's why it helps that God gave us the sign. Because here in this sign, this little picture in advance, this little taste of what Jesus is about to do, this little sample of Jesus' life-giving work, here we learn something about how it works. Actually, there was an earlier sign. There was an Old Testament picture that's very much like this. You may recall that. Do uh, you remember Ezekiel's vision in the Valley of Dry Bones? Ezekiel 37. Kind of an interesting vision that Ezekiel had. His, 
in his vision, his dream, however it came to him, he went out into this valley and here in the desert floor are human bones, scattered, dead, dry, no flesh, bones. Here he stands out in the middle of the desert with bones laying around and rotting, getting brittle and dried in the sun. The Lord says, okay, Ezekiel, I want you to preach now to these bones. Can't you see the expression on Ezekiel's face? He says, say what, Lord? You mean do what? He says, prophesy, prophesy to these bones. Yes, sir. Hear the word of the Lord, he begins to preach to the bones. And what happened? There was a rattling sound and a clanking sound, and the bones started to gather together in this vision he had. And the foot bones connected to the leg bone. The leg bones connected to the thigh bone. You know how that goes. Thigh bones connected to the hip bone. Hear the word of the Lord. <laughs> Eventually then flesh started to appear on the bones. And the wind came and filled with breath. And there in Ezekiel's vision, as Ezekiel preached to dead bones, God raised up living people, a whole army of the Lord. picture of how Jesus gives new life. Now God gives us another picture, another sign here at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus comes up to the tomb and the people are all standing away and he says, move that stone. Martha says, no way, Lord, he stinks, he's dead, you don't understand, he's dead. Move the stone. See, they don't want to associate with dead people because dead people stink. That's why we don't want to associate with non-Christians sometimes. We think they stink. They say bad things, they do bad things, and phew, we don't know how to deal with it. So we stay away. Keep them blocked off. Lock the door back there so they can't come in here. Because they might stink. And Jesus' insistence, though, they move the stone. Jesus looks up and he prays to his father, then he says in a loud voice, not some mumbo-jumbo seance stuff, muttering to the dead, in a loud voice where everyone could hear, including the man in the, in the cave there. Lazarus, come out of there, he says. In verse 44, the dead man came out. Wow, how'd Lazarus do that? How did he get his heart pumping again? And how did he get his cells revived? And how did he get his brain uh, uh, going again? And get the brain waves working? And how did he get his ears working where he could hear the sound and get his muscles strong enough to get up? How did he do that? Well, he didn't. He couldn't. Jesus raised him to live again. You see, the same person who stood there and shouted the order gave the life that enabled him to respond and come out. And that's a sign. It helps us understand how God called men and women through the gospel to give them new life in Jesus. People are spiritually dead. They don't care. They don't want to listen. They don't hear what you're saying. They don't understand. They cannot find it in their heart to respond to God's grace no matter how good you make it sound. 
but Jesus sends us to proclaim the gospel to these dead people. To tell them how Jesus died for sinners and God raised him from the dead. And to call them to turn away from the sin that they love so much and follow Jesus who they've been fighting against their whole life. What are the chances that's going to happen? Zero. That's absurd. They're not listening. They don't want to. They're insensitive to such things. So don't you think for a moment that it depends on how persuasive you are or how cool you are or how skilled you are what kind of a salesman you are, you can't sell things to dead people. Don't care how good you are. But you see, God didn't hire us to sell. He commissioned us to go and do the impossible, to proclaim to dead bones, hear the word of the Lord, to tell dead people, Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, and he gives new life. Follow him. And as in the valley of dry bones and as at Lazarus' tomb, the same, so when we proclaim the gospel, the same Jesus who calls people to repent and believe and follow him gives them the life to enable them to do that. We have no power. They have no power. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power. The power to give new life. To call people to Jesus. To raise them up. To believe in him. Follow him. I tell you this morning, if you're not telling people the gospel, you're missing the greatest opportunity you've ever had. The opportunity to participate in the greatest miracle that human beings have ever seen. How God can take uh, an angry, deadened, uh, hostile sinner and turn him into his precious child by hearing this simple gospel that could be understood by a five or six year old. And all that's only a taste of the greater things to come. For on the last day, the trumpet of God is going to sound, the archangel is going to speak, and the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and once again there'll be a loud command, come out! And as he does, those who have died believing in Jesus will come out of their graves, and we who are alive and remain will be instantly changed, and together we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air to live with him forever, and then the reality will be complete when Jesus raises us to live again forever. Well, that sounds foreign to you this morning. I'm not even trying to explain it away because I can't explain it and you can't understand it. Because if you don't know Jesus, it's all Greek to you anyway. But while I can't explain it and you couldn't understand it, Jesus is still calling dead people to rise up and follow him. You see, if you hear that and it makes sense to you somehow, it's because he's doing it. So respond. Rise up and follow him. Start trusting him. Cast yourself at his mercy. Believe his promises. That's the way he raises people to live again. William Barclay tells of a young Marine who started coming to a chaplain's Bible study. 
They came to this passage in John chapter 11. After that study, the young Marine came to the chaplain and said, I've got to talk to you. I've got to tell you what's happening with me. He said, everything in this chapter is pointing at me. He told how his life had been a living hell for the last six months. He'd done some terrible things that nobody knew about except God. But he was struggling under the guilt of it all. He had thrown away his life. He had shot his future. He was overwhelmed with guilt. His life was ruined. He was a walking dead man. But he said, as we study this chapter, I've come to live again. I know that this resurrection Jesus was talking about is real right here and now because he has raised me to new life. I'm not dead anymore. I'm alive again. That's what Jesus is doing all over the world today. He is calling people to live again. And how do we know when this happens? What's the evidence? What accompanies and immediately expresses this new life that Jesus gives? People believe in Jesus. They put their trust in him. They, they start trusting and believing what he said and being willing to act on it because they know it's true. Begin to trust and obey in faith. Is that you? Do you hear his call? Then come to him. Rest your soul in him. Jesus raises us to live again. Well, back to the ice cream store. You know, I can hardly afford to walk into those ice cream stores anymore, Baskin Robbins. I've learned that one little plastic spoonful of free pralines and cream. And I'll be saying, give me a half gallon of that. Give me one of those three-gallon tubs of that, how about? I'm hooked. My heart is captured. That's what samples are about. One little taste and your appetite is whetted. You want the whole thing. And so the Lord delays his return to Bethany until Lazarus dies. Why? So that we might taste a sample. We might see a sign a little token of this great salvation that he has come to accomplish in his own death and resurrection. Salvation that is now accomplished for us. And when we taste it, how sweet is it? Oh, it's like nothing you ever tasted. It's sweeter than you can imagine. It's the most precious truth ever heard by humans that the God of God the Holy One has come into the world and he has borne my sorrow. He has taken my grief and removed it forever. And now, by his own death and resurrection, he raises me to live again. 
The dying's gone. The defeat is over. The grief is powerless. The sting of death is removed. Because I'm raised already and will be even more raised by Jesus to live again. What a great salvation. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Amen. Father, I pray that you would take your word as we reflect on it. Lord, that you would cause us to see that this lonely, aching road that we travel, we need not walk alone. And that this deadness of our soul that tastes defeat of every day need not be our experience. Thank you, Lord, that you've come and borne our sorrows, that now you raise us to live again. And we experience that in all of its fullness, not just a hint of the taste of it, but the whole thing, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.